the gospel according to John. I've tried to emphasize this. About every week we've studied it, but a gospel is an ancient newspaper. The very word gospel has within it the word news. It's a report of what has taken place. It's an ancient newspaper, and it is recording on good news. In fact, the best news in human history. It's the news that Jesus of Nazareth said that he's God's son and showed that he's God's son, that he is God's chosen king to one day rule forever on earth. And he is the only one who can forgive sin and beat death. He forgives sin through his crucifixion. He beats death through his resurrection. That's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the best news ever. And this is the gospel according to John. It's the fourth gospel at the heart of the Bible. There's the one according to Matthew, and then there's the gospel according to Mark, and then according to Luke, and this one is according to John. It is from a slightly different perspective. It is focused on a slightly different audience than the others. And it is written in a different decade from the others. This is the last one written. We think it's written probably around 90 AD. John is probably in his mid-80s as he writes. That's a guess. He knew Jesus personally for a few years, probably in his mid to late 20s. And now he has followed Jesus faithfully, served Jesus, been persecuted for Jesus for decades Over five decades, probably, this man has served faithfully. And here, probably toward the end of his life, again, we don't know exactly how old he is or exactly how old he lives to be, but here, toward the end of his life, he is remembering accurately the way Jesus changed his life, who Jesus was, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, why he became a follower, why everyone should become a follower. And today we read John 13. It is the turning point in this gospel account. It's when John's major emphasis on his audience shifts from believing to loving. If you just count the number of times the word believe appeared in the first 12 chapters, it appeared 76 times. Believe, 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 believe. It's a major emphasis. It's not that it totally goes away, but in the last half of the book, it only appears about 23 times. So major emphasis on believe that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's God's chosen king. And that emphasis now starts tapering off and layered on top of it is those who follow Jesus, those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, love one another. Their lives are marked by love. And it's interesting, in the first 12 chapters, the term love appears 12 times. In the last half of the book, that over triples and it moves to 45 times. Again, we're just using word counts, but it gives you an idea. Believe, 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 believe. When you've believed, love, 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 love. They get layered on top. It's not saying that this is believe and this is love because they're both there in both places. But the emphases change. And it's like the foundation has been laid in chapters 1 to 12. And now the bricks are being built. Those who believe Jesus are marked by love. It's like peanut butter and jelly. They just go together. Not all of you agree with that. 
Hopefully you're not one of those that does peanut butter and mayonnaise. Not sure about that one, but anyway, these two go together. They're a perfect pairing, believing in Christ and loving one another. If you just think through these last chapters, major emphasis in chapter 13, look down at verse 34, for example. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Or chapter 14, flip the page to verse 25. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And within keeping my word is obeying the command to love others. Chapter 15, just flip another page over to verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jump to the end of chapter 17. At the climax of Jesus' prayer for his disciples, John 17, 26, he prays that his disciples, for his disciples, that the love with which God the Father has loved Jesus, the Son, may be in them. He's praying that their love would be strong, permanent, like his. Then, of course, just think with me, chapters 18 and 19 is the greatest display of love ever as Jesus lays down his life. He loves them, as John 13 says, to the end. And then chapter 21, just jump over there with me. Chapter 21, verse 15, 16, and 17. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? If you do, then love my sheep. Care for my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times, do you love me? then love my sheep. Do you love me? Then love my sheep. Do you love me? Then love my sheep. There he uses three different terms that communicate the concept of love. Care for them. Provide for them. Feed them. This kind of thing. I hope that that quick summary just shows you, oh yeah, he's been saying Jesus did this sign so that you'll believe. He did this sign so that you'll believe. And he gets to chapter 13 and says, you believe he's the son of man? Love as he's loved. Love as he's loved. Father, make them love like You love me, and I love them. May they love others like that. That is where John shifts. You can see there's a major emphasis change. So now I want to read John 13, the first chapter that launches into this theme of love. And this takes place earlier in the evening on which Jesus is arrested and just a day before he's tried and crucified. He's talking about loving others in that kind of stress. Hmm. John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice that is kind of an awkward statement. There is a lot of subordinate clauses before you get to the main idea. He loved them to the end. And John, I think, probably means both. He loved them faithfully, meaning to his very last breath, and he loved them fully to the nth degree or all the way to glory. Mm. He loved them to the end. During supper that night, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, 
who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterward you'll understand it. Jesus is indicating in making that statement that this foot washing symbolizes what he's about to do at the cross and being crucified. But Peter doesn't grasp that yet. Peter, verse 8, said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me, no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, I want to be with you no matter what. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But he's completely clean, or the rest of him's clean. And you're clean. All of you have been bathed except one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. And that's why Jesus said, not all of you are clean. To put it very explicitly, Peter is someone who has committed his life to Jesus as the Son of Man. He needed a foot washing. Judas, who refused to submit his life to Jesus, needed a whole body bath. Judas needed a bath. Peter needed a foot washing. And as our truth focus for today put it, we are decisively washed and cleansed from all of our filth, from all of our rebellion, from all of our desire to be our own authority rather than have Jesus rule over us. As soon as we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus and rely on Jesus, we are washed and cleansed. And yet, Jesus and his disciples all taught that we need to pray daily, forgive me my sins even as I forgive those who sin against me. There is a daily foot washing. Those of us who are bathed still get our feet dirty. In the same way, like the truth focus said, that a married couple is decisively united. They become one when they say their vows to one another. And yet they continue working at that oneness and working out that oneness day by day. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments back on and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus is not saying that we have the power to cleanse other people's sins. But he is saying that we now, as his disciples, engage with him in helping his disciples get rid of sin in their lives. We help one another in this work of growth in Christ-likeness, in this work of washing one another's feet, as it were. He says, verse 15, For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And here he quotes Psalm 41. He who ate bread, my bread, bread with me, has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. You might cross out that word he there at the end of verse 19. It's not in the Greek. It's supplied in English. That's why in like the New American Standard or the King James, it's in italics. It's because it's supplied by the translators. I think Jesus is deliberately playing on words. He's saying, after it all happens, you are going to believe that I am the Davidic king. Like Psalm 41 was prophesying, the Davidic king who would rule forever on earth after enduring such suffering. But even more, after it all happens, you're going to know that I am. That I am the God who knows the future and who controls the future. He says, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. This is the author John's first clear reference to himself, and he's going to refer to himself in this way, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved many more times in the book. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John's referring to himself in the third person, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it's going to be the one I'll give this morsel of bread to when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. It was dark in more than one sense. Notice again verse 2 and verse 28 combined. Satan, who is an angelic spirit opposed to God, influenced Judas's heart. He put ideas into Judas's heart, and then he entered Judas. I'm looking at everyone here trying, and I just want you to know to be a human is not merely to be a body. You are an embodied spirit. And your spirit can come under the control of other spirits. And it is why it is critical to be united in spirit to Jesus and to be controlled by, even the illustration that Paul uses in Ephesians, is to be intoxicated by God's spirit. Because that will produce love, joy, peace, patience. If you are not intoxicated controlled, governed by God's spirit. Beware what spirit can influence you, even enter you. 
when Judas, verse 31, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I'm with you. You'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This is new, not because people have never been commanded to love one another before. That goes back to Leviticus. Love your neighbor as you naturally love yourself. It's really a new degree We're called to love other disciples, not merely as much as we naturally love ourselves, but as Christ loved them. Mm. This kind of love is amazing. And Jesus says, next verse, it is distinguishing, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, clearly, Peter is picking up on what Jesus had said in verse 33. Jesus said, just like I said to the Jews, I'm saying to you now, where I'm going, you can't come. And it's almost like Peter was like, oh, I got a question, 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 question. And he completely missed verses 34 and 35, right? He's like, wait, wait, what do you mean you're going somewhere that we can't come? Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'm going to lay my life down for you. Jesus said, are you going to lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. And you know what Peter should have done right here? Jesus, wash my feet again. (laughs) To understand the central message in this chapter, we have to understand five strands, okay? That should say main point in John 13. Five strands that John beautifully weaves together. The first strand is this. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's identified as such in verse 31. This is what John has taken 12 chapters to establish, To be the Son of Man, according to Daniel 7, is to be God's chosen human to rule forever on earth and receive worship from people of every other ethnicity. Jesus is the Son of Man. Second, Jesus' hour to be glorified is here. He's been saying up to this point in John, my hour is not yet. The hour is coming, but it's not here yet. Now the hour is here. Of course, the hour is referring to his death and resurrection, which interestingly, amazingly, is his hour of exaltation. Jesus' moment of most brilliant glory is when the Son of Man is spilling his blood on the cross. His hour of glory is here. Third, Jesus makes himself the slave who cleans other people's feet. And as I put it, 
in the reading, this action is powerfully symbolic. It's symbolizing the cross where Jesus becomes our slave, sacrificing his life to cleanse us from our sin and bring us into the glory of his Father. Fourth, Jesus is driven by love. As verse 1 puts it, he's doing all of this out of love. He's loving them to the end. And love, of course, is a warm, sacrificial commitment to another person's best. That's love, according to Scripture. A warm, sacrificial commitment to another person's best. Fifth, Jesus commands his disciples to love one another just as I have loved you. These are the five strands that are coming together as I see it in this chapter, and John beautifully weaves them together into one main point that I would word like this. Jesus, the Son of Man, all out of love, became our slave to cleanse us and bring us to glory. We must receive his love and mirror it. Mirror it the rest of our lives. The Son of Man, the most exalted human, all out of love became our slave to cleanse us from our filth, to bring us to glory. And we need to receive his love, be open to that cleansing which comes through faith in his cross, and we need to mirror it the rest of our lives. Now, it's not really what any of us wants to hear this morning. You're like Judas. You wanted to come to church and hear that this morning? All of us are naturally like Judas, right? Every one of us comes into this world like Judas. We are naturally bent on living our own agenda, and we'll go along with Jesus as long as he fulfills my wants. That's Judas. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar. I'm really interested in Jesus if he's interested in me. That's Judas. And in the picturesque words of Jesus, Judas needed a good old washing. He needed a bath. He needed a soaking. He needed a scrubbing. The whole of him, head to toe, washed. That's what Judas needed. And if you have not decisively submitted your life to Jesus, I'm not saying asking Jesus to help you in your life's mission. You submit your life's mission under the authority of Jesus' mission. If you've never submitted your life to Jesus, you need a washing. You need to receive Jesus' love. He wants to wash your feet. He wants to wash all of you. He wants to bring you to glory. You need to receive his love. You need to receive the love of the crucified for you, risen and returning to reign king. Now, for all of us who have received Jesus' love, Jesus commands that we now mirror it. We show it to others. I think that Jesus' command in verses 14 and 34, do you realize what I've done to you? Do it to others. A new commandment I give to you, love others as I've loved you. I think they're really one and the same command. To put it bluntly, we should mirror 
Jesus' sacrificial cleansing love in every single relationship. In every single relationship. And this is especially in four relationships. I want to end really with four applications. And the first is that this command that we should mirror Jesus' sacrificial cleansing love in every relationship applies to every single follower of Jesus, every single disciple. It is discipleship. It doesn't matter what your age or your stage in life, whether you're in college or retired, whether you're more introverted or extroverted, whether you've been a Christian for six months or six decades. You are called to love others, love other disciples with the same kind of love Jesus has loved you. Incredible. Tri-County? Look around. We are committed to one another. Jesus commands us, the Son of Man commands us to love each other like he has loved us. Maybe in your mind's eye, go to the one or two people in the congregation that are the hardest to love. The Son of Man says, warmly, sacrificially, committedly, give yourself to that person's best. Love as I have loved you. And we do this in numerous ways. We pray for their growth. We invest in their growth. We encourage verbally their growth. But it is also going to mean that you're going to enter into relationships that stress the life out of you. Because every Christian wants to grow, but few Christians enjoy growing pains. And you know what Christians do? We stay committed to each other. That's love. That's Jesus' kind of love. Discipleship involves loving Christians who, like Peter, are constantly getting their feet dirty. And we who engage in the work of discipleship all ourselves have dirty feet. The church is a messy business. It's a messy business. Discipleship is messy work that involves warm, sacrificial commitment to each other's best. Jesus' command is for every Christian parent. Doesn't parenting involve constant sacrifice toward those who need change? (laughs) Ironically, so many parents in our day get into parenting for fulfillment. This is the next phase of my self-actualization journey. Only to be shocked that parenting involves a few decades of relentlessly humbling and demanding sacrifice. That's parenting. Christian parents are called to lay down their lives for their children, all of whom need a bath, and all of whom love playing in the dirt. What is parenting? This is not only what parenting is, but what does it sound like so much during the week? Stop interrupting. Be patient. 
Do you see that you're trying to be the boss? Are you the parent? Take turns. hundred other things like that where we are trying to curb pride, impatience, cruelty. Parental discipline is in terms of John 13, cleansing work. And it's all for the shaping of our children's characters. The goal of every Christian parent, really, is one day to present each of our children to the Lord saying, God, you entrusted me with this child for 20, 30 years. And I poured out my life, I sacrificed my life, I laid down my life for their best. Here it is, God. The sacrifice of my life, the good of my kids. Number three, the command is for every Christian husband and wife. According to the scriptures, marriage as well involves warm, self-sacrificial commitment to our spouse's best. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ sacrificed himself for the church to cleanse her and to present her one day faultless. Incredible. It's almost like Paul and John knew each other. (laughs) Christian marriage means being committed to your spouse's holiness. His or her Christ-likeness. Their best. I love how Timothy Keller puts it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, for Christians, falling in love means this. It is to look at another person, get a glimpse of the person God is creating, and to say, I see who God's making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey of taking you to his throne. And when we get there, I'm going to look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth. But now, look at you. That's where I'm heading with Hannah. To the throne. I need to lay my life down to present her spotless, radiant. It's the vision of Christian marriage. Sacrificial. Cleansing for the goal of glory. Keller goes on to point out just how that is so exactly opposite the way our culture thinks about falling in love. Most people think, I'm going to find someone who's perfect, and I hope they will realize that I don't need to be changed at all. (laughs) Christians are realists. We enter into marriage saying, both of us are going to get our feet dirty a lot. And Jesus calls us to be committed and involved in lovingly washing each other's feet till death parts us. Hmm. Lastly, Jesus' command is really for every church leader. Every disciple is called to be a servant, but leaders in particular are called to be lead servants. This is the most significant distinctive of Christian leadership. Leaders don't think of themselves as dictators, but as servants. I think J. Oswald Sanders in his classic book called Spiritual Leadership is just so helpful in this regard. He says, Jesus was a revolutionary, not in the guerrilla warfare sense, but in his teaching on leadership. His term servant 
speaks everywhere of low prestige, low respect, low honor. Most people are not attracted to such a low-value role. When Jesus used the term, however, it was a synonym for greatness. And that was a revolutionary idea. Jesus knew that the idea of leader as loving servant of all would not appeal to most people. Securing our own creature comforts is a much more common mission. But servant is his requirement for those who want to lead his kingdom. Servant leaders. See, Jesus' command here in John 13, love others as I have loved you, it is for every disciple of Christ. It's especially for Christian parents and Christian spouses and church leaders. It is comprehensive. It should govern our lives. I'm going to wrap up with a concluding encouragement, but I need to make two just pointed observations. You need to hear me say both of them. First, there is so much servant-mindedness, love, at Tri-County. We have faithful teachers. We have faithful leaders. We have faithful parents. We have faithful spouses. We have faithful nursery workers. We have faithful caregivers, and so on and so forth. We have so many people who are marked by warm, committed, self-sacrificial love. And I can't wait, Tri-County, to stand before the throne and hear Jesus commend you. Well done. Say, God, you get all the glory for all the work, the, the unselfishness you were working in this church. I want you to know, as I preached this morning, I am not a frustrated pastor saying, oh, if only Tri-County would be more loving. I'm preaching to you as a happy pastor. So thankful to get to lead this congregation. And now I say my second observation. We are so far from where we need to be. God is at work in us. There is so much more to be attained in terms of Christ-likeness in this congregation. So much more. Now, first, I want to say there's so much more in the church at large. It's not unique to us, Tri-County, right? If you look at the evangelical church in America, and the statistics just show that evangelicals are consumers. When I go to that church, what's in it for me? Hmm. So many evangelicals are guilty of no-fault divorce. So many churches split. So many leaders are known for scandal. It's disgusting. Jesus calls us to love the church like we have been loved by him. And the church at large is not doing a great job. But I also say that our church specifically needs to grow. We as Jesus' disciples here at Tri-County, and I, as one of the leaders here at Tri-County, we are so far from where we need to be. I am so far from where I need to be. We need to identify ourselves in this chapter as Peter, constantly getting dirty, 
not really wanting to be cleansed. We think of ourselves as pretty strong and pretty humble, when in fact we're pretty proud and pretty weak. William Law put it like this, deeply convicting. There is no greater sign of confirmed pride than when you think you're humble enough. And that is the dirty mess in which Jesus calls us to love. It's only in the dirt that Jesus' self-sacrificial cleansing kind of love is seen and is radiant so that people say, why do you keep loving those people? Because I belong to Jesus. Jesus is the only reason I keep loving those people. It's all because of Jesus. It's what makes our love distinctive. When we keep loving those who are still like Peter, arrogant, ambitious, competitive, when we keep loving those people, we're distinctive as Jesus' disciples. So I want to conclude by asking what I hope is a really encouraging question. How do you keep sustained in your love for the church? How do you keep sustained in your love for that group of people, every one of which has dirty feet? How do you keep sustained in your love? I think there's a hint in the middle of verse 23. It's the author's first reference to himself in the gospel. He never refers to himself by name. He never says, I'm John, the one who's writing. He only refers to himself, look at verse 23, as one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Why does John refer to himself like that? I think it's mainly because the love of Jesus, to receive the love of the Son of Man, is identity-shaping. In fact, it's identity-dominating. The most important thing about John wasn't John. It was Jesus loves John. And the most important thing about Joe isn't Joe. It's, I'm one of the disciples Jesus loved. And the most important thing, Tri-County, about you individually and us as a congregation is Jesus loves me. Jesus loves us. It's identity shaping. And Jesus' love, this is misunderstood everywhere today. Take me up on this sometime. Maybe don't. Go to the CCLI database. Look at the top 50 songs for 2020. And you will find a lot of songs that churches, by and large, are singing. Basically, Jesus' love shows my worth. That is not what the cross shows. Jesus doesn't love us because we're lovely. He didn't love Peter because Peter was clean. Peter was dirty, and Jesus loved him to make him clean. It's been said, Jesus' love makes us lovely. 
It's not because we are lovely. And it's his love for us. I'm one of those Jesus loved that keeps driving our messy attempts at loving others. Those whom we love have dirty feet. And those of us who are trying to do the loving have dirty feet too. Belonging to Jesus is a messy business. What keeps us going? His love. The way the same author put it in another letter, we love because he first loved us. What keeps us going in this is, I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is your word. I think for most of us in here, it has been sweet to see the Son of Man take on the garments of a slave, cleanse us. And it has also been encouraging, clarifying, convicting for us to be challenged to love like him. Lord Jesus, may your love fuel the love in this congregation, grow the love in this congregation, so that we would be like you in love, so that you would be glorified, so that people would say, something supernatural is going on there. Father, I pray that you would bless us in these ways for Jesus' glory and on Jesus' authority. Amen. Amen.